Medical Clarence Kelly, Father Jenkins, St. Teresa of Child Jesus Church, which is in Carmel, Ohio, on Sprague Road, not even 15 minutes from here, and what Catholics believe. There are occasional periods when one looks back across the panorama of history and one can discern certain landmarks which are very distinct, especially in regards to events which relate to God. And very curious feature is most of the time people do not appreciate the significance of what they see. When our Lord was born, it made almost no impression on the world. No one even knew who he was. Uh, I'm sure when Judith conquered the Holofernes and saved the Jews from the Assyrians, very few people valued that, and very few people recognized her for what she was, a prototype of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, the priests and many believe that we are in uh, times spoken of by many, the latter days. Our Lord revealed uh, to St. Margaret Mary Alcove in the 16th century already that we were entering the latter days. And these remarkable events only make sense if they are viewed from that light. Father Clarence Kelly was in the Air Force, U.S. Air Force, for four years, after which time he entered Catholic University to study to become a priest. He graduated summa cum laude with a degree in philosophy and then spent two years at Immaculate Conception Seminary in New York City. Uh, even though that was one of the most conservative seminaries in the United States, it still was thoroughly imbued with modernism. And just about this time, around 1970, just afterwards, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre founded a cult in the Diocese of William Freeburg. So Father Kelly traveled to Switzerland and was ordained in 1972 uh, to the priesthood. So I'd like at this time to encourage all of you to welcome with me Father Clarence Kelly, who will be speaking about Harmony Catholics in the Second Vatican Council. Thank you, Julius. Uh, he got my name right. Um, the other facts were, well, <laughs> I was in 1973 uh, in Acorn, Switzerland, and Immaculate Conception Seminary is on Long Island. It's the diocesan seminary for the Diocese of Rockville Center, which is the Diocese of Long Island. Uh, I have a lot of material that I'm going to uh, cover this evening. And I'm going to go through it fairly quickly so that uh, this talk may not be what some of the priests have accused some of my sermons of being, which is very divine in the sense of being incomprehensible and everlasting. <laughs> Nor will I try to uh, create a situation which reminds me of the story of the the woman who, a Protestant woman, who with her husband went faithfully to church every Sunday, and one Sunday, of course they thought the, uh, the minister was a gas bag, but, but one particular Sunday she left the gas stove on at home, and her husband was an usher, 
And this particular Sunday, he was ushering up in the corner of the church where the pulpit was, and she remembered in the back of the church that she left the gas stove on, and so she wrote a little note, and she gave it to another usher, and she pointed to her husband who was standing just under the pulpit, and the man thought she was pointing to the preacher in the pulpit, and he took the note, went up to the pulpit and gave it to the preacher, and the preacher opened it. The other that said, uh, go home and turn off the gas. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, if you are tempted to send up such a note, uh, I'll ask you to hold off and you give it to me later on. But I am covering quite a bit of uh, territory here, which is a kind of overview, as you will, of God's dealing with... <clears throat> man and his church uh, from the beginning up until almost the present time. And it's quite a bit to cover. Obviously, most of it will have to be covered in a very cursory way. We do know as a fact that God existed of himself from all eternity, that at one time there was only God and nothing else. And then God created all things out of nothing. And the reason God created it all was out of a motive of his own personal goodness. The purpose for which God created men and angels was for his glory and for their happiness. As regards men and angels, the glory of God is secured by their love and service. If you were to ask God, how can I glorify you, O God? He would say, by freely serving me and loving me. Well, it just so happens that man's happiness is secured by exactly the same thing. How are we to be happy? By freely serving and loving God. So the primary purpose and the secondary purpose for which God created, these two purposes are secured by exactly the same thing, to freely serve and to love God. Now, when the angels and men were created, they were created in a state of sanctifying grace, and they were created in a state of perfect natural happiness. But God was not satisfied with the bestowal of perfect natural happiness on men and angels. He would give them perfect supernatural happiness. He desired that they know him as he knows himself, and love him as he loves them. This type of knowing and loving is achieved only by the beatific vision, by seeing, loving, and rejoicing in God and in the inner life of the Blessed Trinity. To achieve this end, angels and men were created, as I said, in sanctifying grace, because sanctifying grace is the seed of eternal glory. Sanctifying grace is to eternal glory what the acorn is to the giant oak tree. But between the creation and sanctifying grace and the ultimate fruition in eternal life and eternal glory, between the two there was a road or a path along which men and angels figuratively had to walk. And so in this sense, men and angels were created in what is called a state of pilgrimage. They were created and set on the path to eternal glory. 
Now, remembering that God's glory and the happiness of rational creatures both are attained by the same thing, namely by their free service and love of God, God necessarily would have to really create them free. They had to have the power to say yes to the love and the service of God, and they had to have the power to say no. And confronted with this choice, many of the angels said no to the service and the love of God. It is believed that a third of the angels joined in Lucifer's cry, non serviam, I will not serve. And since the happiness of men and angels is secured by the free service, as we have mentioned already a number of times, and the love of God, the refusal of the angels to serve necessarily meant that they would not be eternally happy. It meant that they would be eternally unhappy and eternal misery would be their portion. The Apostle Peter, the first pope, said, God spared not the angels that sinned, but delivered them drawn down by infernal ropes to the lower hell unto torments to be reserved unto judgment. And St. Jude said, the angels who kept not their principality, but forsook their own habitation, he hath reserved unto darkness and everlasting chains unto the judgment of the great day. And the Apostle John said, He, that is the devil, stood not in truth. The angels who chose to serve and love God entered into eternal happiness and into the eternal glory of heaven. As a consequence of their, their eternal misery, the fallen angels were consumed with hatred for God and envy for men. The sin of envy is sorrow over another's good. Adam was inferior by nature, but was destined to eternal happiness. Lucifer, who was more ex exalted and excellent by nature, was destined to eternal misery, and the fallen angels with him. And so they set out to destroy what St. Louis de Montfort called the divine masterpiece, man. <laughs> St. Louis said, Man was yet a divine masterpiece, the living image of God. He was the living image of God's own beauty and perfections. He was the great vessel of His graces. He was the admirable treasury of His riches and His sole representative on earth. Lucifer, the master of deceit, set his trap to break the vessel and tarnish the image. To get to Adam, he started with Eve. Why hath God commanded you, he said, that you should not eat of every tree of paradise? <coughs> of the fruit of the trees that are in paradise we do eat, Eve said, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of paradise, God had commanded us that we should not eat and that we should not touch it, lest perhaps we die. No, said the devil, you shall not die the death. For God knows that in what day soever you shall eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good to eat and fair to the eyes, and delightful to behold. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave to her husband who did eat. 
and the eyes of them both were open. Their eyes were indeed open. They knew good and they knew evil. They experienced good and they experienced evil. But they rejected the free service and love of God and therefore they turned their backs necessarily on their own happiness. They were cast out of paradise, they lost sanctifying grace, they lost what the theologians called original integrity and the preternatural gifts that God had bestowed upon them. They became subject to suffering and death and the dominion of the devil. Their minds were darkened, their wills suffered the wound of malice, their passions were disordered, and they were destined to the eternal fire and the eternal misery of hell. And yet in spite of their rebellion, God did not abandon them. Instead, he promised a savior. He promised a new Adam. He even promised a new Eve, the mother of the savior. By the first Eve, the devil crushed the head of Adam. It would therefore be fitting that by the second Eve, Mary, the savior would come and the head of Satan would be crushed. And so God said to the devil in the Garden of Eden after the fall, He said, I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed, and she shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. God's response to man's rebellion was to send his son to become a man. Isaiah the prophet said, God himself will come and save you. He will come to seek and to save that which was lost. St. Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And St. John says God sent his son into the world that the world may be saved by him. And so it was that the Son of God became a man. On the first Annunciation Day the Incarnation took place. On the first Christmas Day at Bethlehem he was born of the Immaculate and Spotless Virgin Mother. Protected and nurtured by Saint Joseph and his Blessed Mother, he grew, the Son of God made man and labored. After 30 years of obscurity and three years of public ministry, and after three years on the cross, he died his atoning death for our sins. He offered himself a true and a proper sacrifice on Calvary. He laid down his life for us. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried, as the creed says. And after he died, he descended into hell. This is something which is denied, by the way, by the modernists. Then on the third day, he rose from the dead in glory and in power. He appeared to the apostles and disciples on many occasions and then on ascension day he ascended into heaven and he commissioned the apostles to go into the whole world and preach the gospel that is to preach the catholic faith and he that believes shall be saved and he that does not shall be condemned and he took his place at the right hand of his father and he sent the holy ghost on pentecost sunday and he established his church and he caused it to flourish in a wondrous fashion in the face of a terrible opposition and persecution. He promised to be with his church until the end of time. And he marked his church, his Catholic church, with certain signs so that it might be distinguished and set apart from false religions and false churches. 
He bestowed upon his church marks by which she could be identified. And he made membership in his Catholic church a condition of salvation. But the relationship of Christ to the church and the divine attributes of the church and his promises to be with the church and to protect the church until the end of time, this did not mean the end of demonic activity. On the contrary, our Lord established his church in this way to protect it in souls from the devil and from demonic activity. The devil is still a roaring lion, as St. Peter said, seeking someone to devour. He has not ceased his work. He worked on the apostles. He destroyed Judas. Satan entered into him at the Last Supper, the Gospel says. He set his sights on Peter. Satan has desired thee, our Lord said to Peter, but I have prayed for thee. From the earliest days of the church, Satan has sought to corrupt morals and to destroy the truth. Sin and heresy are his great tools, but heresy is his tool for lasting success and lasting destruction. And for 2,000 years, the demon of heresy has raised its ugly and destructive head in every conceivable way. The devil has sought to distort and to corrupt, to twist and obscure, and finally to deny the doctrines revealed by Christ and taught infallibly by his church. In the beginning, there were the Judaizers, those Jews converted to the faith who opposed, in effect, the evangelization of the Gentiles. These heretics were enemies of the merits of Christ and of his precious blood and of grace itself. To the end of the first century, there were those who denied the reality of Christ's human nature and ascribed to him a phantom body, thereby denying the incarnation and thereby depriving us of a savior who shed his blood on the cross. St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was the first to use the term Catholic Church to distinguish the church from the various sects, responded to these heretics by saying that Christ was truly born and ate and drank and was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. Then came a long line of heresies and heretics spurred on by the devil. There were the Gnostics, the Arians, the Manichaeans, the Pelagians, the Nestorians. There were the Monophysites who said that there was only one nature in Christ. There were others who said that there was only one will in Christ. And then there were the, the iconoclasts who sought the destruction of holy images to appease the Jews and the Mohammedans. This was followed by the Eastern Schism. Then there were the Albigensians and the Waldensians. It was the Waldensian heretics who denied the authority of the church and who rejected the priesthood and the mass and purgatory and the indissolubility of marriage, among other things. And from the inside of the church, the devil too launched his attack. There was the Babylonian captivity of the church, which began in the year 1305. For 70 years, the popes were in exile in Avignon in France. And after the restoration of the popes to Rome, the great Western schism was the next crisis for the church. It lasted for 36 years. And during this great Western schism, there were at first two men who claimed to be pope. There was Urban VI at Rome and Clement VII at Avignon. 
St. Catherine of Siena favored Urban VI at Rome. St. Vincent Ferrer, who was the angel of the apocalypse, favored Clement VII. St. Catherine turned out to be right, and St. Vincent turned out to be wrong. Then six years before the end of the Great Western Schism, still another pope was elected, Gregory XII. Eventually, the church settled this terrible division, but Satan had won a tremendous victory. The Great Western Schism brought disorder upon the church. It lowered the respect for papal authority. It led princes to meddle in the affairs of the church, and it caused the erroneous opinions that general councils are above the authority of the pope and have prerogatives beyond his. Sensing that he had the momentum, Satan then inspired new heretics and new heresies. He raised up John Wycliffe, who denied the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and who created the ugly Protestant God who decreed a positive predetermination to sin and unconditional predestination to the eternal fires of hell. Then came John Hus, who was greatly influenced by Wycliffe, the heresies of Wycliffe and Hus were followed by disorders affecting faith and morals, which resulted from a misguided study of pagan literature and law during the Renaissance. The pagan ideas of the Renaissance were introduced into the church. The two false doctrines that the will of the ruler is supreme law and the ruler is supreme in temporal and spiritual things was accepted in the practical order by many men and the stage was set for the Protestant Reformation. Luther came in Germany, Zwingli in Switzerland, John Calvin in France and Geneva, and John Knox in Scotland. The Anabaptists appeared in Germany, and it was Henry VIII and Elizabeth in England. Tools of the devil they were, one and all. They were enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ and of his Holy Catholic Church, one and all. Their effect on Christianity and the world itself was immense and devastating. And again the stage was set for still another great revolt against Jesus Christ and his Holy Catholic Church. This revolt bears the name in our history books of the French Revolution. The Protestant Reformation justified itself by a claim to following the gospel. By 1789, Satan obviously thought that he could tear away the pretense of appealing to scripture in order to attack the truths of Christ and the church. And so dropping the pretense of returning to primitive Christianity, the revolution set out to destroy in an open and a violent way what the Reformation sought to accomplish by subterfuge and deceit, namely the dethroning of Christ the King and the destruction of the Catholic Church. And so instead of appealing to primitive Christianity, as the Protestant reformers did, the revolutionaries appealed to primitive man. They sought to restore man, as they would say, to his original state, in which there was no family and no property and no God and no nations. There would be no one and nothing to tell him what to do, save only the goddess of reason. And the revolutionaries pursued a program of open and violent hatred for God and the church. The Protestant Reformation would subordinate the church to the state. What most people think is not true. Most people are under the assumption 
that the Protestants believed in a separation of church and state, and that the Catholics believed in a union of church and state. The truth is that the Protestant Reformation introduced into the thinking of modern man the idea that the church was subordinate to the state. And so the French Revolution would totally destroy the influence of God and the influence of the church on the state. The revolutionaries were consumed with a satanic hatred and they turned their wrath against Catholic institutions and priests and religious, as well as against the faithful. Countless thousands of priests and nuns and brothers and lay people were brutally murdered and slaughtered in the streets. And the revolutionaries declared publicly in their assembly at Paris that France ceased to acknowledge God. And then they brought a prostitute in solemn procession to the church where they placed her on the altar of Notre Dame and worshipped her as the goddess of reason. This is the revolution that is hailed as a great event in so many of the history books that your children are using in school. Following the spirit of the revolution, the anti-God mentality flourished in the 19th century. In Germany, France, and in Austria, there was a terrible fury unleashed, unleashed against the Catholic Church. In Germany, priests and nuns were driven from their monasteries and convents and were left to pray to poverty and starvation. Chalices, reliquaries, and sacred vessels were melted down. In France, the church was even more despoiled. In Austria, 700, and in Spain, 900 convents were confiscated. What had been left by the followers of Protestantism in the 16th century was now taken by the followers of Voltaire and Rousseau and Freemasonry. And again, the world was set for, set for still another attack on Christ and the church. It was set for the greatest heresy ever devised by the devil. It was set for what St. Pius X called the synthesis of all heresies. If you were to take all of the heresies from the beginning of the church up until the 20th century, and you were to synthesize the most evil, the most degraded, the most objectionable points, and put them together, you would end up with this heresy, the synthesis of all heresies. The world was set for the heresy of heresies. Modernism, which laid the axe, St. Pius X said, not at this doctrine or that doctrine, but at the tree of Catholic truth itself. Up until this time, for the most part, those who attack the truths revealed by God and taught by the church would attack this truth or that truth, or this set of truths or that set of truths. Modernism attacked it all. It took the ax and sought to cut the roots of Catholic truth itself. The situation, in fact, had degenerated to such a degree that the end of the world seemed almost at hand to St. Pius X. St. Pius X was elected Pope in September of 1903. One month later, he issued his first encyclical. He called it from the chair of the Supreme Apostolate, Reflections on His Elevation to the Papacy. And in that encyclical, 
He spoke about the situation in the world. He remarked that the world was characterized by an evil spirit. This spirit was not unlike, he said, the spirit that would give rise to the coming of the Antichrist. He said, and these are his words in quotation, considering all these things, there is good reason to fear that this great perversity may be the foretaste and perhaps the beginning of those evils reserved for the last days. And then speaking of the Antichrist, he said, the son of perdition of whom the apostle speaks may already be in the world. In the fifth year of his pontificate, on September the 8th, 1907, Pope St. Pius X issued what is probably his most famous encyclical, his encyclical on the modernists and the doctrines of the modernists. In that encyclical, he said that the modernists were enemies of the cross of Christ, who by arts entirely new and full of deceit, are striving to destroy the vital energy of the church, and as far as in them lies, utterly to subvert the very kingdom of Christ. He said the modernists were filled with pride and obstinacy and had audacity as their chief characteristic. And with this spirit of pride and obstinacy and audacity, they set out to reform everything in the Catholic Church. The threat from the modernists was so great that St. Pius X said, the security of the Catholic name is at stake. Wherefore, he went on to say, we must interrupt the silence which it would be criminal, it would be criminal to prolong that we may point out to the whole church as they really are men who are badly disguised. In the wake of St. Pius X's action, the modernists suffered a very great setback, but they were not defeated. They lost a great battle, but they did not surrender in the war. The modernists went on as they went underground. And by the pontificate of Pope Pius XII, it was evident to some that the church was in grave danger once again from modernism. Pope Pius XII sought to counter this danger by certain of his writings, and no doubt by his canonization of Pope Pius X, which he said was the greatest act of his pontificate. But he did not succeed in any lasting way. With the election of John XXIII, the modernists had just the pope they needed at that stage of the game to carry out their program. John XXIII was the man the revolution waited for. He would open the window through which the revolution would enter the sanctuary, and he did not waste much time. On January 25, 1959, Pope John XXIII manifested his intention to convoke an ecumenical council. He declared this intention in an address delivered to 17 cardinals in the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. About a year and a half later, on June 5, 1960, he established commissions to prepare for the council. And then again, another year and a half later, on December 25, 1961, he issued a papal bull actually convoking the Second Vatican Council. A month later, on February 5, 1962, he set the actual date for the opening of the council. The date for the opening of the council would be October the 11th, 1962. 
The Second Vatican Council was supposed to be the 21st General Council of the Catholic Church. I say it was supposed to be because John XXIII said in his opening address to the Council that this Council would not deal with articles of fundamental doctrine, nor would the Council condemn error. But that is the function of the Council, to teach Catholic truth and to condemn error. Here are the words of Pope John XXIII in that opening speech to the Council. The salient point of this Council is not therefore a discussion of one article or another of the fundamental doctrine of the Church, which has repeatedly been taught by the Fathers and by ancient and modern theologians, and which is presumed to be well known, by, well known and familiar to all. For this, a council was not necessary. And so we ask, why then the council? The council is necessary, he said, quote, as a step forward toward a doctrinal penetration and a formation of consciousness through the methods of research and through the literary forms of modern thought, unquote. For, quote, the substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the way in which it is presented is another." Unquote. Now I realize that this may sound very obscure and mysterious, but to someone who has studied theology, and to someone who has read, for example, the encyclical of St. Pius X and Modernism, it is neither obscure nor mysterious. What did he mean? What was he talking about? Here's what he was saying. Number one, the truths of our Catholic faith are not adequately expressed by the infallible definitions of popes and councils as regards modern man. Number two, the truths of our faith are actually obscured by the definitions of past popes and councils as regards modern man. And number three, therefore it is expedient to set aside the definitions of past popes and councils in order to make the faith relevant to modern man. We must take up, he said, the modern methods of research. We must penetrate anew the doctrines of the church, arrive at the truth, and then express it in a way that is relevant to the consciousness of modern man. Now understood in the context of church history in the program of the modernist, this is a formula for revolution. Speaking of the modernist, St. Pius X said in his encyclical on modernism, they are to be found in the ranks of the priesthood itself and lost to all sense of modesty. They put themselves forward as reformers of the church Moreover, they lay the axe not to the branches and shoots, but to the very root, that is, to the faith in its deepest fibers. The position taken by John XXIII, which he declared would be the very mission of the council, whether he intended it or not, I don't know. Nevertheless, it was precisely the axe needed by the modernist to lay waste the very root of Catholic truth and to change the faith 
and its deepest fibers. This position became the means to set aside the definitions of past popes and councils and to reinterpret and reform everything under the guise of making the Catholic religion relevant to modern man. The distinction made by John XXIII between the substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith as one thing and the way in which it is presented as another and the subsequent conclusion that one may set aside the expression of the past in the service of relevancy to modern man is exactly what the modernists needed and exactly what they wanted. As I said, I do not know if John XXIII intended to radically alter everything Catholic, but he opened the window to such a reform and his opening speech of the council was the green light. Now he should have known better. He should have known that it is in accord with the methods of heretics to destroy the truth by attacking the way the church expresses the truth. And he should have known that it is in accord with the practice of the church to protect the truth by expressing her teachings in clear, specific, exact, unreformable formulas. The very idea that the truths of revelation have been inadequately expressed by the church in the past and that new expressions are needed is a pernicious error to suggest the formulas of the councils of Nicaea and Ephesus and Trent are irrelevant is a damnable suggestion. We Catholics are obliged to accept the truth revealed by God and the expression of that truth in the infallible definitions of the church. A Catholic cannot say that he accepts the truths contained in the Apostles' Creed, but rejects the wording of the Creed as irrelevant to modern man. He cannot say, yes, he believes in God, but rejects the expression, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, because the notion of creation is alien to the evolutionary mentality of modern man. He cannot say that he believes in Christ but rejects the expression, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. The Catholic cannot say that he accepts the truths contained in the Nicene Creed, and at the same time that he rejects the formulas of that creed as irrelevant to modern man. The Catholic cannot say, for example, that he believes in the divinity of Christ, and yet at the same time say that he rejects the word used by the Nicene Creed to express what the divinity of Christ means. For example, in the fourth century, there was a heresy called the Arian heresy. It was a widespread heresy. It was a heresy in which about 80% of the bishops came to hold the position that Christ was not the Son of God. It was a heresy that was so powerful that it moved the Roman emperor to incarcerate the Pope until the Pope agreed to sign a formula that was ambiguous, Pope Liberius, who it is believed on sound historical evidence excommunicated Saint Athanasius who resisted the Arian heretics. That is not to say that he invoked his supreme 
authority to do that. It just means to say that he didn't. Well, in the fourth century, there was this very widespread Arian heresy. These heretics rejected the divinity of Christ. But if you were to go back in time and stop a typical Arian and said to him, do you believe that Christ is the Son of God? He would say, of course I do. What do you think, I am a jerk? And the reason he would say he believed it is because the expression Son of God can have a number of meanings. We can be called sons of God. But when we say that Christ is the Son of God, we mean it differently. And so the Catholic Church, in order to overcome the deceit of the heretics, insisted on a specific word to express the truth that Christ was truly the eternal Son of God and divine. The word in English is consubstantial. In Greek, it is homoousios. And in Latin, it is consubstantialis. By this word, the church expressed the truth of the divinity of Christ in such a way that Arians could not accept the word. The church expressed the divinity of Christ in this way, this word, in such a way as to overcome their clever deceits. You see, the word consubstantial is unequivocal. It is unambiguous. It leaves no room for deceitful distinctions. It declares in no uncertain terms that Christ is divine and that he possesses the same nature as the Father. He is of the same substance, the same divine substance as the Father. And so the Arian heretics were trapped. They were trapped and they were excluded by the precise, the clear, and the exact language of the church. And so as I said, they rejected the word consubstantial because they really did not believe in the divinity of Christ. They were exposed for what they were by the precision of the church. Catholics have no trouble with the word consubstantial. They embrace it, and they did embrace it at the time, and they gloried in it because it protected the truth of the divinity of Christ. It saved them from error. Another example would be Martin Luther. If you were to stop Martin Luther after he began his Protestant Reformation, and even toward the end of it, and you said to him, Master Luther, do you believe in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist? He would say, of course I do. I'm not like those other Protestants. I'm not like Calvin and Swingley and that bunch. It is the clear sense of the scripture that Christ is really present. But if you then said to him, oh, you believe in the real presence? And he said, yes. And then you said to him, do you believe in transubstantiation? He would say, oh, no, that's that abominable, blasphemous, idolatrous doctrine of the popes. You see, you cannot get around the word transubstantiation. It has only one meaning. It expresses the doctrine of the real presence in a way that is clear, precise, unambiguous. Trans means to go across. 
substance is what makes the thing what it is. And so to go across, as it were, from one substance to another, to go from being, from being bread to being the body of Christ, to go from being wine to being the blood of Christ, expresses how Christ is really present in the Holy Eucharist. And so Luther would not abide the word transubstantiation any more than the Arians would abide the word consubstantial. A true Catholic person who has the faith in his heart and believes it and loves it accepts the revealed truth. He accepts the words used to express the truth and he accepts the meaning of those words as they were received by the church. When men begin to proclaim their loyalty to the truth but seek to change the expression of the truth and the formulas of the truth as defined by popes and councils, watch out. And the church ever mindful of this clever device to try to separate the expression of the truth from the truth itself has condemned the notion that one is free to reject the expression of a dogma while claiming to accept the truth contained in the dogma. Not only must we accept the revealed truth, we must accept the way that truth is taught by the church and the words and the sense of the words used by the church in defining that truth. The First Vatican Council, which was convened to teach the truth and to condemn error, said this, the doctrine of the faith which God has revealed has not been proposed to human intelligences to be perfected by them as if it were a philosophical system, but as a divine deposit entrusted to the spouse of Christ to be faithfully guarded and infallibly interpreted. Hence also, the council went on to say, that sense of the sacred dogmas is to be perpetually retained, which our Holy Mother, the Church, has once declared, nor is this sense ever to be abandoned on plea or pretext of a more profound comprehension of the truth. What the First Vatican Council said was, in effect, if not explicitly, abandoned by John XXIII in his opening speech to the Council. What the First Vatican Council said on doctrinal grounds, John XXIII in effect set aside on pastoral grounds in the interest of being relevant to the mentality of pagan modern man. The First Vatican Council said that all subsequent expressions of defined doctrine must be according to the same dogma, the same sense, the same acceptation. John XXIII's declaration of the purpose of the Council makes the Council suspect from the start. The terrible effect of Pope John's break, as it were, with Vatican I is evident in the fact that orthodoxy and faith is the exception today. And heresy is the common food dished out in so-called Catholic schools and universities and seminaries. 
Vatican II has proved to be one of the most extraordinary events in the history of the church and indeed in the history of the world. General councils in the past had been convened, as we said, to teach the truth and to define dogma and to condemn error. The Second Vatican Council was convened to take Catholic truth, set aside the way that it was taught for 2,000 years, and then to find new ways of expressing it so that it would be acceptable to this corrupt world. But not only would the reformation of Catholic dogma be the mission of the Council, the Council would also adopt the policy of not condemning error. In his opening speech to the Council, Pope John XXIII said, the Church has always opposed errors. Frequently she has condemned them with great severity. Nowadays, however, the spouse of Christ prefers to make use of the medicine of mercy rather than that of severity. Imagine, the condemnation of heresy by the Church is called severity. Was Pope St. Pius X too severe when he condemned the modernists? Was Pope St. Pius V too severe when he condemned Protestantism and opposed the Mohammedans? Was Christ our Lord too severe when he sent away his disciples because they refused to accept his teaching on the Holy Eucharist? Was our Lord too severe when he turned to Peter and the other apostles and said to them, in effect, if you do not accept what I say as I say it in the words that I say it, then you leave with them. Will you also go, our Lord said to Peter and the apostles. Peter responded, O Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life. We see, we behold everywhere the spiritual death and corruption caused by that medicine of mercy. Yes, the Second Vatican Council was unique, but it was not unique the way the other councils were unique. It was not like the Council of Trent, there wasn't like the great councils of the early church. It bore no resemblance to the first four general councils of the church. It bore no resemblance to the Council of Nicaea in 325, which condemned the Arian heresy. It bore no resemblance to the Council of Constantinople in 381, which proclaimed the perfect Godhead of the Holy Ghost and which marked the death of Arianism. It bore no resemblance to the Council of Ephesus in 431, which declared that Mary was the mother of God and which condemned the Nestorian heretics who said that there were two persons in Christ and therefore Mary was not the mother of God, who was simply the mother of a human person. It was, not, it was not like the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451, which condemned the Monophysite heresy and which affirmed that while, while in Christ there was only one divine person, Yet there were in him two natures, one human and one divine. Each of these councils condemned error, and each of these councils proclaimed the truth. That is the function of a general council. And so in the year 590, Pope St. Gregory the Great said of these four councils, on these, as on four square stone, rises and stands, the structure of faith 
and of each one's life and action. Whosoever does not cling to their solidity lies outside the structure. In other words, God Almighty used these four early councils to protect the deposit of faith delivered to, to the church by Christ and by the apostles. The teaching of the first four councils, this teaching was like stone upon which rose and upon which stands the structure of the Catholic faith. The doctrines taught and the words used to express the truths contained therein are an essential part of that structure and of our Catholic faith. It never was and never will be the function of a general council or of a pope to first distinguish between the substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith and the way in which it is presented, and then to set aside the way in which it is presented down through the centuries and teach it a new way. It has never been the function of a council or of a pope to do that. It is inconceivable, it is unthinkable that someone should suggest that and then take the truths of the faith and subject them to the methods of research and the literary forms of modern thought. Do you know what they have done with the so-called literary forms of modern thought? I will tell you what they have done. They have denied the truth of the sacred scripture they have reduced most of the events in the life of our Lord to myth and fairy tale. I know it because I was taught that. I was taught that at Immaculate Conception Seminary in Huntington, New York. The result of such a wholesale rejection of the formulas by which the church expressed and protected the truths of revelation could only bring disaster. We who are alive to see the result behold before us, if we are honest, I believe, the distinct, the disintegration of virtually every external institution of the Catholic Church. We see the loss of faith and the destruction of morals, the scandal of the young, the scandal of the old, we see our children losing their faith in Catholic institutions. We see in so many instances that they have precisely lost their faith because of what this priest or that priest said, or this nun or that nun or this course or that course taught. Under the pretext of separating the truth from the church's expression of the truth, and then making the expression more relevant to modern man, heresy of every sort has been smuggled in. Departing from tradition, the Second Vatican Council would usher in a new age. John XXIII's declaration of intent in his opening address indicated what was to come. But what was to come was also indicated by the Council's house guests. On September the 5th, 1962, John XXIII released a document. This was just five weeks before the opening of the Council. In this document, he provided for the presence of non-Catholic delegate observers. These non-Catholics would not just be permitted to attend the public sessions in the hopes of their conversion, 
They would also be permitted to attend the working sessions in which all the Catholic bishops took part. These non-Catholic delegates would represent the World Council of Churches and 10 separate Protestant denominations. At the Second Vatican Council, there were present representatives from the Anglican Church, the Reformed Church of Switzerland, the Lutheran World Federation, the World Presbyterian Alliance, the Reformed Church of France, the Church of Scotland, the World Convention of Churches of Christ, the Friends World Committee, the International Congregational Council, the World Methodist Council, the Old Catholic Church, the Coptic Church of Egypt, the Syrian Jacobite Church, and an Associate General Secretary of the World Council of Churches in Geneva. On October the 11th, 1962, the Council opened. There were present cardinals, patriarchs, archbishops, and bishops from the ends of the earth, numbering about 2,600. These were the fathers of the Council. When you add the number of theologians and other experts, the number swells to above 3,000. From the point of view of size, organization, and impact, the Second Vatican Council has been described as one of the great assemblies of all time. Its full impact, one writer wrote, at the time of the Council, is expected to be felt far into the future. Events of enormous importance, probably unfolding slowly over many years, will be traced to it. As I had mentioned, John XXIII indicated his reforming intention and his intention not to condemn error and not to treat it with severity. He also indicated something else in that speech. He indicated that while he would not be severe with error, he would be quite severe with those who opposed him in his program of reform. He had severe words and a public rebuke for those he called certain zealous persons who warned him that things terrible were unfolding. He attacked these churchmen. He said that they lacked the sense of discretion or measure. He said, quote, in these modern times, they can see nothing but prevarication and ruin. They say that our era is getting worse. We feel we must disagree with those prophets of gloom who are always forecasting disaster as though the end of the world were at hand. The council now beginning rises in the church like daybreak, a forerunner of most splendid light. It is now only dawn and already at the first announcement of the rising day, how much sweetness fills our heart. Pope John's intention to reform Catholic teaching and to set the agenda for the council was made plain. His attack on the loyal Catholics set the tone of the council. Would that John XXIII had listened to the faithful Catholic prelates who warned him of the evil that was on the way. They were right, as he now knows in eternity, and he was wrong. His crowning work, the council, marked the hour of one of Satan's greatest triumphs. And what John XXIII would prepare, Paul VI would bring to fruition. The somewhat distant, 
uncommunicative Paul VI would become one of the greatest revolutionaries who ever lived. Before Paul VI, reformers and revolutionaries sought to change governments and societies. Some sought to change the church in this country or that country. But Paul VI sought to change the church everywhere and in every way. Paul VI would reform every single aspect of Catholic life. Every facet would be altered. The mass would be changed, the sacraments would be changed, and in the wake of all this change, modernism would reign supreme in Catholic institutions throughout the world. He would bring about a revolution the likes of which the world had never seen. So extensive have been the changes and so far reaching the reform that we must honestly say that the new church of Vatican II is essentially a different church from the Catholic Church. Its dogmas are different, its morals are different, its worship is different. I will give you some examples from my own experience in the seminary. When I was in the seminary studying theology at the seminary I mentioned to you before, in the Immaculate Conception Seminary in Huntington, Long Island, I had a full dose of un-Catholic and at times anti-Catholic poison. I was taught that the action of St. Pius X against the modernists was an act of totalitarian repression. Imagine. Since the 16th century, there have only been two popes canonized, St. Pius V and St. Pius X. St. Pius X was canonized by Pius XII, who said it was the greatest act, probably, of his pontificate. A priest in a Catholic seminary, in the presence of the body of seminarians and other priests, said, quote, the action of Pius X was one of totalitarian repression. I was taught that St. Pius X, this canonized saint of the Catholic Church, was, quote, the rat, the rat who was the head of the ship, unquote, that sailed against the modernists. I was taught that there is, quote, no universal law or universal creed, unquote and that it was, quote, to a state embodying these characteristics that the Christian is called by Jesus, unquote. I was taught that, quote, there is never a fixed moral standard. This is the message of the gospel, unquote. I was taught that original sin is not something passed on to us, but it is something we get when we personally sin. One professor said that the death of an infant was the movement from, quote, a lower level of animal existence to non-awareness, unquote. This same priest said that he believed that all men will be saved. Of course, I don't exactly know what he meant by salvation. 
Because if he was a follower of the modernists who directed his thinking, his notion of the resurrection would not be my notion of the resurrection. For the modernists teach that the resurrection simply consists in taking a dead body, putting it into the ground, letting it decay, and the molecules of that body and the spirit of those molecules is absorbed by the earth. I was taught that man is in a situation to become God and that the devil was merely a personification of evil. And I was taught that Jesus Christ our Lord did not die for our sins. That he did not shed his precious blood as a ransom for us. I remember one day I was in I believe it was the hallway, the door of a classroom that I had in my hand, a copy of the text of the, of the Council of Trent, canons of the Council of Trent. And here I was arguing with this priest professor who was shouting and screaming that Christ did not die for our sins. And I was reading to him the text of the Council, the exact explicit text. And he refused to accept it absolutely refused. What heresies, what outra outrageous blasphemies are taught today? I was taught that Christ didn't even know who he was. And that he only came to a gradual awareness that he was the Son of God. This is both absurd and a denial that Christ is God. Many other modernist doctrines were taught, such as the heresy that Christ did not institute a church while he was alive, that he did not even know what his mission was, that he contradicted himself, that St. Joseph may have been his natural father, all these things I was taught in 1970 and 71. Heaven knows what they teach today. And as I mentioned to you, and I'm not joking when I say that by the standards of those days even, that seminary was a fairly conservative seminary. Now I know that the bishop of the diocese at the time did not agree with these heretical teachings. I know that. Why did he not do something about it? I believe the reason was that he knew that if he acted against the heretics in his seminary, he would be subject to persecution, not only from below, but from above. He knew he would not be supported. Just as Cardinal O'Boyle was not supported, when at Catholic University, he sought to dismiss the heretic Charles Curran. Father Charles Curran, who is pro-abortion, who speaks out for the perversion 
which is called, well, unnatural marriages, at the time opposed humanae vitae. In the teaching of the church on artificial contraception, and Cardinal O'Boyle fired him because it was a pontifical university. He was chancellor of the university. Father Curran appealed to Rome. Father Curran did not lose his job. That bishop of the diocese, an old and venerable bishop who knew what was going on, did not act. He adjusted his conscience, and now he is dead and judged. He went along as so many others went along with the revolution as a result of pressure from above. I remember one old brilliant Monsignor who was the rector of the seminary for many years, one day announced before the whole student body of the seminary that he had to take sleeping pills for a whole year because his conscience bothered him over what they were teaching in his seminary. Then with a big smile on his face, he proclaimed how he had overcome that obstacle and reconciled himself to the new way. Yes, indeed, the changes have been so radical and so substantial that it is impossible for me to identify the religion that is found in most Catholic churches virtually all with the Catholic religion. In 1968 to 1988, for example, the number of annulments in the United States rose 17,000% from 68 to 88, 17,000%. Could anyone honestly maintain that a 17,000% increase in annulments does not reflect a substantial change in their belief with regard to the nature of marriage. Since 1966, 13,200 priests have left the priesthood in the United States alone. And the International Federation of Groups of Married Priests, which has affiliates in 24 countries, estimates that in the last 25 years, 100,000 priests have left the priesthood worldwide. A New York Times CBS News poll taken in 1987 showed that a majority of American parish priests believed that they should be permitted to marry. My dear people, the Catholic Church was established by our Lord Jesus Christ and was instituted to carry on His work. He established His Church to teach to govern, to sanctify, to save, and to condemn error. He commissioned his church to preach his gospel, his truth, to the end of time. Go into the whole world, our Lord said, and preach the gospel. He that believes shall be saved. He that does not shall be condemned. But what is taught in this post-Vatican II church is not his gospel, nor are the people being governed according to God's law. They are not being sanctified and they are not being saved. And I don't say this to judge any individual. 
For only God judges the soul of a man. But we can conclude by external behavior what people believe and what they hold dear and what is sacred and what is not sacred to them. The people are being scandalized and they are being lost. For this new church does not teach, govern, and sanctify. It misinforms, it sows chaos, and it desanctifies. Now foreseeing that false prophets and false churches would arise, our blessed Lord and Savior marked his church with signs that it might be distinguished from false religions and false churches. He placed upon his church four marks whereby it might be known. His church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. His church is one in faith, in government, and in communion. The unity of Christ's church is evident by the fact that all members, A-L-L, -L, all members, not 80% or 90%, not most of the clergy, but all the clergy and all the people, inwardly believe the truths of faith proposed by the teaching office of the church and outwardly confess them. That is the mark of unity. The Catholic Church, the church established by Jesus Christ, is holy. It is holy in origin, it is holy in purpose, and it is holy in means, and it is holy in its fruits. The church is holy in origin because it was established by Christ himself. It is holy in purpose because it seeks the glory of God and the salvation of souls. It is holy in means because it makes the true sacrifice of the Mass and certainly valid sacraments available to men. And the church is holy in its fruits because by following her direction and her law and her institutions and her teaching, the people will become holy. And the Church of Christ is Catholic. In the Apostles' Creed we say, Credo in Sanctum Ecclesiam Catholicam. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Where this is meant that the church is universal and extends over the whole earth. The Catholic Church is not a national church. It is not like the Church of England or of Ireland, nor is the Catholic Church characterized by association with a man or an event like the Lutheran Church or the Pentecostal Church. The Catholic Church is for all men, for all time, all nations, every background, every condition, every age. She offers salvation, the salvation of her divine spouse to all peoples of the earth. As our Lord said, going therefore teach ye all nations. And again, ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost ends of the earth. And though it is true that the title Catholic Church was first used by St. Ignatius of Antioch, who said, where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church, yet the mark of Catholicity was put upon the Church by Christ and discerned by the Fathers. And finally, the Church is apostolic. Its origins, its teachings, and its succession go back to the Apostles. Now if you judge the post-Vatican II Church by the standard of the four marks of the Church, 
there's a problem. The new church, your parishes, lack the four marks of the church. The new church is not one, it is pluralistic. It is not holy, and I don't mean this in any harsh, critical way of any individual. I'm talking about what it produces. It is not holy because it has turned millions of practicing Catholics into practicing pagan. How can I say that? Is there an essential difference between what Catholics believe concerning divorce and remarriage from what Protestants believe? Is there a great difference between what Catholics believe and Protestants believe in their numbers I'm talking about with regard to abortion? There is not much difference. The new church leads us away from the commandments of God and it causes unholiness. What do priests say in the confessional when they face a difficult question? It is not easy to face a difficult question in the confessional. It is not easy to tell a person, here's what you must do when you foresee doing that will impose upon them unbelievable sacrifices, but we must do it. What do they say? Follow your conscience. And if people do not find a priest to tell them exactly what they want to hear, what do they do? They shop around until they find one. And the good people search around to try and find priests who have the faith and who love the Blessed Mother and who say the rosary and who will not disparage their beliefs and their loyalties to the faith. This new church leads away from the commandments of God and hence it causes unholiness. If you followed the new code of canon law, you would give the Holy Eucharist to non-Catholics and you yourself would be able to go to a non-Catholic church like an Orthodox church to receive the Holy Eucharist. Nor is it Catholic it is not universal, but it tends to be national and regional. It is not apostolic. It is not the church of all time. It is the church of our time. Its relevancy is to an age, a point in time, and to a spirit that is modern and hence inimical to the spirit of Jesus Christ. In fact, the new church is hardly 30 years old as opposed to 2,000 years old. It is new indeed. Yes, it is true that it claims to be Christian, but its primary appeal is to what happened 25 years ago and not to what happened 2,000 years ago on Calvary and at Pentecost. The new church is interested in getting along with this world and not with convicting it and converting it. The whole spirit of this new church is contrary to the spirit of Catholicism. It is interested in relevancy to this world and novelty. It is more the church of the tempter who would win the masses by bread and shows and novelties and not by the sufferings of the Savior who would save us by his cross 
and it would make the carrying of his cross a condition of salvation. The spirit of devotion to novelty and change, which is a mark of the new church, betrays its anti-apostolic character. And the Catholic Church has condemned solemnly this lust for novelty. Pope St. Pius X appealed to the words of the Second Council of Nicaea in his encyclical against the modernists to condemn their lust for novelty. St. Pius X said, speaking of the Second Council of Nicaea, it condemns those who dare after the impious fashion of heretics to deride the ecclesiastical traditions, to invent novelties of some kind, or endeavor by malice or craft to overthrow any one of the legitimate traditions of the Catholic Church. To deride ecclesiastical traditions, to invent novelties, to endeavor to overthrow the legitimate traditions of the church. Isn't this what has happened? Isn't this the spirit of the reform of Vatican II when all is said and done? Now I realize that these are astounding things to say and shocking in some ways. I realize that it is inconceivable that so many priests and bishops and theologians could abandon the Catholic religion. How could it be that so many have done this? It would seem that for such a thing to happen, this would have to be the great falling away spoken of by St. Paul in his epistle to the Thessalonians. Maybe we are. Maybe we are living in the end times. St. Pius X may have been right in this regard. Maybe we are near the end. The signs of the second coming of Christ, of the preaching of the gospel to the whole world, the conversion of the Jews, the great apostasy, the appearance of Antichrist, and severe tribu tribulations. Well, we can say, I think, that the gospel, the Catholic faith, has been preached to the whole world. This seems to be a time of severe tribulation. The Jews have not yet been converted, that's for sure. But the conversion of the Jews will be done, it is believed, by the fathers of the church, by Elias, who was taken up into heaven and who never died. And he will come back and he will convert the Jews to the Catholic faith. But the coming back of Elias will be some way related to the time of the Antichrist. And the appearance of the Antichrist hinges on the great apostasy. And the great apostasy, which is the great falling away of the faithful. We're not talking about the falling away of non-Catholics. We're talking about the falling away of the faithful. The great apostasy can only happen when someone is removed from the scene. 
St. Paul, in the second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, speaks about a restrainer. He speaks about a restrainer that has been given by God to protect the church from the schemes of the devil. Who that restrainer is, we do not know. Some of the fathers of the church believed it was St. Michael the Archangel. Some believe it was the Holy Ghost. But St. Paul the Apostle says, the time will come when God will remove the restrainer from the scene. And when the restrainer, the one who restrains the devil, is removed from the scene, then will come the great falling away and the great apostasy. For the mystery of iniquity already worketh, St. Paul says, only that he who now holdeth the restrainer does hold until he be taken out of the way. Whatever may be the cause of the present crisis, whether we are in fact, as St. Pius X thought, in the end times or not. In any event, I believe the solution is the same. And that is to hold fast to the traditions, to hold fast to the mass, to hold fast to Catholic faith and Catholic morals. St. Paul writing to Timothy said that in the last time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to spirits of error and doctrines of devils. And again he says, hold to the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and in the love which is in Jesus Christ. And in the same chapter where St. Paul talks about the great apostasy and the coming of the Antichrist, he gives to us a formula by which we may protect our Catholic faith in such a time of crisis and turmoil. And here is what he says. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have learned, whether by word or by our epistle. And that is what we believe we must do. And that is what we believe we will be judged by when it comes to the end. Should an angel from heaven, as St. Paul said, preach to you a gospel that is different from the gospel that you have received, let him be anathema. And should an angel from heaven preach to us a Catholic faith different from the faith of our fathers and the faith of 2,000 years of popes and councils, we say, let him be anathema. This faith of our fathers, we promise and swear to maintain through the intercession of Our Lady with the help of God, entire, inviolate, and with firm constancy 
until the last breath of life. Thank you and God bless you.